Welcome to Pocket Economics, a guide to changing lives, our podcast about the ideas which are shaping the EBRD regions and beyond. I'm Jonathan Charles, and today we're discussing innovation, the best antidote to stagnation. According to Michael Porter from the Harvard Business School, innovation is the central issue in economic prosperity. So why then are companies afraid of innovating? What holds them back? How can we boost creativity, the driving force behind innovation? Our guest, Ralph de Haas, is the EBRD's Director of Research. He's here today to help shed light on this very important ingredient in any company's success, any economy's success, you might say. Um, Ralph, people tend to believe, don't they, that innovation is really just all about technological pro- progress. Um, and in, in a way it is. Uh, first of all, thanks for, for having me here today. Um, I think in a way it is, but there are very different types of innovation. So I think I agree with the statement that it's all about technolo- technological progress. Uh, but you can progress in um, you know, a, a wide variety of ways. So I think what people use usually think about is inventions. So really coming up, doing research and development, coming up with a completely new product or production technology, uh, patenting that, and then uh, basically using that in your production structure. Um, and that's sort of hardcore new inventions, innovation. Um, it's very important. It's particularly important in countries that are very close to what we call the technological frontier. So think about Western Europe, think about the U.S. Um, but in many emerging markets and uh, in a lot of our countries' operation, there's a second form of innovation, which is very important as well. Um, and that's much more about imitation. Mm. So it's not about reinventing the wheel of, you know, coming up with completely new solutions, but it's basically about taking the best from what has been developed elsewhere and implementing that in your own firm. It's really about adopting and possibly adapting. And for us, this is a very important form of innovation as well. And again, it's a form of innovation that, um, as we show in a number of reports over the last couple of years, has a, a very large impact on firm productivity. So how would you measure innovation in firms? I mean, you've given us a sort of description of what innovation mm-hmm. might look like in the economy, in firms, but, but how do we measure it? Well, here at EBRD, what we basically do is we, we go to firms, we do interviews with managers, and we ask them whether they have invented new products or processes or adopted new products or processes. And there is a, um, a, you know, a standardized way of doing that, something called the Oslo Manual. Uh, and in that way, uh, researchers from a wide variety of countries are using the same methods to establish whether firms in their countries are innovative. Uh, and this allows us also to benchmark our countries to uh, Western European countries or the U.S. by using the same uh, methodology. Is, um, there, is there a simple mm-hmm. causation here? You know, can we say, for example, the most innovative firms are always the most successful? Because there are good examples, aren't there, of companies that have been very innovative but in the end, they've either been too ahead of the market or, or it hasn't quite worked out. Exactly. And I, I think that risk is particularly high for firms that do new inventions, uh, often firms that are financed by venture capital, angel financing. We know that um, they come up with completely new products that are either very, very successful and they sort of they are expanded across the world or they, they die a, a, slow, a slow death. Um, I think with a lot of the innovation that we see in our countries of operation, the risks are slightly lower, and we still see relatively high returns. So adopting, again, a product or a process from elsewhere, from Germany or the US or from Italy, and integrating that into um, the, your own production structure is slightly less risky than that sort of hardcore innovation. Um, and the, the, the advantage of that is that we may potentially not need as much venture capital or angel finance in our region at the moment, uh, because what we see, and again, this is based on some of our in-house research, is that banks are actually very good financiers of this sort of, you know, more adoptive type of innovation. So they are willing to invest or to lend to 
um, firms in order for them to be able to buy or develop these uh, these technologies. And what do we draw out about general economic progress from what companies are doing in terms of innovation? And I suppose always coming to mind when we talk about technological innovation and mm -hmm. other process innovation, one thinks of countries like Israel, for example, mm -hmm. I guess, where you've got very innovative companies, clearly has a very positive impact on the economy. But right. what, what can we say in general about that relationship between economic progress and, and companies' innovation? Well, we, we know that if companies are successful in developing these completely new products that can have very large impact on, uh, on local economic growth or even economic growth at the, at the country level. We also know that um, not so much technological inventions, but more the diffusion of existing technologies is equally important. And the speed with which that happens varies a lot across countries. So um, some recent research shows, for instance, that up to a quarter of the income, the difference in income levels between countries can be attributed to differences in speed in which countries are able or firms in countries are able to adopt foreign technologies. So this is not about, this is completely separate from developing those technologies and those products in the first place. Even if all of that would happen in the US or Western Europe, there's still a massive difference between countries that are very quick in sort of buying or imitating those technologies and countries that for a variety of reasons are very slow in catching up, if you will. Now, according to both the Global Innovation Index and Bloomberg uh, Innovation Index, 10 of the countries where the EBRD works are included in the world's 40 most innovative countries. Mm -hmm. So on the surface, on the face of it, it looks like innovation is one of our region's strengths. But why do you think these countries that are doing well have stood out? Right. right. Well, I, I had a look at that list of 10 countries. I mean, they are very, um, it's a very diverse yes, group of countries. Yes, so, yes. Uh, and, and there were, there I were mean, some surprises. I mean, yeah. I mean, well. I mean, yes, I mean, I guess, you know, you've, you've drawn it out now, but uh, here you've got in the Global Innovation Index, you've got Estonia, Cyprus, Slovenia, Hungary, Latvia, Lithuania, Slovakia, Bulgaria, Poland and Greece. Right. Uh, on the Bloomberg one, you've got Russia, Poland, Slovenia, Hungary, Lithuania, Greece, Estonia, Turkey, Croatia, Slovakia and Latvia. I suppose I could put you on the spot. What have they all got in it's common? common? <laughs> yeah, well, that's a good question. Um, I, I thought a bit about this. I think, I think um, um, so, so one thing that, that I would say is that most of these countries have are relatively open countries. So in both in terms of um, trade um, and uh, also in terms of uh, people. And so I think that is very important. Innovation is a lot about um, ideas and um, having access to good quality people. And in many cases, that means um, allowing people to uh, emigrate from your country and at some point return mm. to your country and perhaps exploit ideas that they developed abroad in your own economy. So I think this is this sort of circular migration is something that a lot of people are talking about these days. I think there's a strong connection potentially also with um, innovate, uh, innovation, in particular when we talk about this sort of adoptive type of, uh, of innovation. I think the other thing that is um, uh, that potentially some of these countries uh, have in common is a relatively well-developed banking sector. Mm. So again, there are of course huge differences, but we know that having access to finance, having access to bank credit even, may help uh, companies to become um, more innovative. And so the, the banking, at least within our region, these are a number of countries that have relatively developed uh, or large banking systems. But again, the, um, the, the, the variation across these countries is very large as well, of course. And also, in some ways, it feels a bit counterintuitive when we point to some countries in our region as being very, uh, somehow at the cutting edge of innovation. Because, you know, we know, for example, from one of our transition reports we mm -hmm. did here at the EBRD, that innovative startups are quite scarce in the in the transition region. There is a lot of, of, as you said, of adoption and then adaptation, but actually real, real innovation is not easy. So, I mean, I wonder whether 
you know, that really tells the whole story, those indexes, or, or whether we more see innovation in some of our countries and then people leaving with their innovative yeah. products to, to other countries. You know? that, that, that is happening. So I think some of the countries on the list, um, um, Slovenia would be a good example, which um, is a country where a couple of very successful startups were established. And the typical pattern that we see from um, for Slovenian startups, um, a number of Croatian companies, some companies from Belarus, from the Baltics, is they, they are successful. They do start up um, within the local environment. They go to either Berlin or to London. They try to get additional financing there, seed, seed capital. Um, they, they are part of an incubator, so they, they professionalize. And then they make the big jump towards the U.S. So they either go to New York or to Silicon Valley. Um, and that's a pattern that we, that we see. So this is what we, I think, in the TR uh, some time ago called mm. the, uh, the innovation drain. Yes. Now, that's, that's not all negative, I think. What we also see is that there, there are links between these companies, even after they've moved to Europe or Western Europe or to, to the US, there are links that remain between these companies and their, their um, uh, source countries, if you will. So they have development centers there. They are using um, high-skilled local people to continue to uh, contribute to the business. So I think this is actually something to be, to be encouraged uh, rather than to, to be afraid of. The, the, the fact that you know, this industry is a lot about knowledge, and we know that there are massive agglomeration effects in knowledge. So the, the, the fact that the U.S., in a sense, you know, has these these big agglomerations of people working on very innovative uh, topics mm. j just means that it's very difficult to beat those um, sort of, you know, f forces that draw everybody to the same location. The scale is obviously important. Exactly, exactly. You're listening to Pocket Economics, the EBRD podcast on how economic ideas can help to change people's lives. So we really want to hear what you think. Contact us at EBRD on Twitter and on Facebook with the hashtag Pocket Economics. I'm Jonathan Charles. Today we're discussing innovation in firms with our guest Ralph Dehaus. And Ralph, of course, every company would love to be uh, fostering a culture of innovation, but it's not easy to do, is it? So why don't some firms do it? Why, what are the obstacles to them really doing? Okay. Uh, well, well, there's there's again a whole variety of, of issues that that can um, that can go wrong or that can be an obstacle. Um, so I think skills is very important. So having access as a company, um, as a potentially innovative company, to the right skills in the local market. Um, as I mentioned before, if if these skills are not in the local market, you would like to have uh, you would like to ideally be in a country with. Um, a visa regime that makes it easy to acquire those skills from uh, for foreigners uh, visiting you for a shorter or longer period. But it also means that local education systems really need to be well aligned with the demands of the local local business sector. And in a lot of our countries of operation, that's still not the case. So we see that people are either undereducated or increasingly are overeducated mm. in the sense that they have a tertiary education but it's in a field that is not really suitable to local companies, in particular not to for local startup companies. So we need, um, I think, you know, a better cooperation between the private and the public sector. Do you see any sign of that being addressed in our country? Do you see uh, governments really reacting to that and understanding they need to change their approach? I think slowly. I think, they, I think there's still too much. Again, in the transition report a couple of years, we looked at these innovation policies, and they are remarkably similar. So across... You know, our, our region covers a lot of very different um, uh, countries, but they all seem to be copying each other in terms of their innovation policies. And I think that that's not a good thing. They, they, these innovation policies should be much more targeted to the local situation, the local environment. And that means that in relatively advanced countries like Poland, for instance, the type of skills that um, the educational system would need to come up with are very different from mm. what we would expect in Kazakhstan or Tajikistan, for instance. Um, but they seem to be copying... that. 
they all seem to be trying to be as close to the U.S. model as possible. And I think that's that's not necessarily the best the best uh, policy. Um, so typical skills would be languages, marketing skills, uh, programming skills. I think that's something that if you talk to startups that they complain mm. about, uh, and maybe may one of the reasons why they move to another uh, country um, as, as soon as they are possible, as, as soon as it's possible mm. to do so. I think the other the other big issue is finance. We discussed mm. that already. So having access to venture capital or angel f- funding may be, in particular, the very early startup stage is very important. Um, but again, we do see um, that just having access to plain and simple bank credit may be very important as well. Um, I mean, that's a key point, isn't it? You know, Because when we're often talking about innovation, you tend to think of really big companies right. who are making really big innovative leaps. Mm-hmm. But actually, it's just as important, isn't it, for small companies, for the SME sector. Are we able to do anything uh, through the EBRD to help companies like that? Do you, do you sense generally, even outside the EBRD, there's a backdrop in our countries of operations to help smaller companies uh, innovate? Um, well, well, definitely. I mean, and, and you know, we are a bank, and so we lend. And I think that just by doing that very basic function, we're already contributing to um, uh, an increased access to credit for small and medium-sized enterprises. Um, I think that's very important, not so much because small and medium enterprises are more innovative per se. Actually, when we look at the data from our region, we see that, that the larger companies tend to be, uh, on average, slightly more innovative. But it means that we can help by providing small and medium-sized enterprises with bank credit, we can make sure that those that are innovative can become serious competitors for those large um, vested interests or in some cases even uh, monopolies. So we really want to challenge even the big guys by financing some of the smaller firms. And we do see that there is a, you know, still a, a, a quite large group of fast-growing small and medium-sized enterprises. You know, sometimes they're called the, the gazelles, um, <laughs> which is a slightly weird term, but but it sort of you know expresses what yep. we the type of clients that we are looking for. And so we can do two things and. Uh, I think we are doing both of these things. One is to provide them with credit so they can grow. They have the, the financial means to to grow and um, invest in, in buying these uh, foreign technologies if they want to. Um, the other thing is to provide them with knowledge. And this is, um, I think, increasingly being recognized as, as perhaps maybe as important as having access to um, a bag of money to be mm. able to buy um, to buy these technologies. So what we do is provide small and medium-sized enterprises with consultancy services, with, with management training. And this is, I think, one of the few interventions in firms that also by academic research have now been shown to 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 work, that it's very likely this is working. So we have evidence from India, we have recent evidence, a very nice paper on Mexico that actually shows that A, it's possible to transfer management skills from a, a teacher, if you will, or a consultant to a firm, and B, that if you are successful in doing that, that it actually has an impact on these firms so that you see that they are growing faster after this mm. intervention. I think this is very exciting and a, and a very nice way to, um, to intervene in the business sector and help to, to firms to become more innovative. Ralph, thank you very much indeed. Well, if you're interested in finding out more, you can visit ebrd.com, of course. Meanwhile, share your thoughts with us at EBRD on Twitter and Facebook. Visit iTunes, SoundCloud and ebrd.com slash podcast to download previous episodes. And remember, reviewing and rating Pocket Economics helps others to find it. Until next time, goodbye.